This episode of Last Things First is brought to you by CISO's Stand-Up Streaming Festival. Featuring 90 comics in 12 weeks, CISO's Stand-Up Streaming Festival is loaded with new stand-up comedy, including exclusive specials from Jenna Friedman, Janine Garofalo, Nick Thune, and Joey Coco Diaz. A new special premieres every week, with more exclusive comedy dropping throughout the festival. To watch all this comedy and much more, go to CISO.com and start your one-month free trial. It's only $3.99 per month after that. In addition to the Stand-Up Festival... CISO has original series including Bajillion Dollar Properties, Take My Wife, and Harmon Quest, plus an extensive library of British comedy classic series and late night, including every episode of Saturday Night Live, right up to current episodes available the morning after they air. Again, go to CISO.com, that's S-E-E-S-O dot com, to start your one-month free trial and get exclusive access to CISO's stand-up streaming festival. Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Roy Albanese joined The Daily Show with Jon Stewart shortly after graduating from college in 1999 and rose from the ranks to become executive producer by the time he left in 2013 and was later the showrunner for The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, also on Comedy Central, where you also started to see him more in front of the camera as a contributor and panelist. He released his first half-hour stand-up special in 2010. So what's next for Albanese? I asked him, so let's get to it! Well, Rory Albanese, uh, yeah. this is a perfect segue for me to ask you here on Last Things First. Mm. What is your job now? My job right now is I am now, for the first time ever, full-time at stand-up comedy. So I've been doing stand-up comedy for a long time. Right. But I've never done it only. I've always done other things. Right. Um, so this is the first time in my life since the nightly show was canceled, I don't know, back in a uh, six, what was it, uh, August 2016 was mm-hmm. our last show. So, uh, you know, three months now, two months, whatever that is, two and a half months have been at it. Not even three months, but like eight weeks. Is it correct to say this is the first time in your adult life that you've had not had an office job? It's the first time in my adult life I've had not, not had an office job. That was comedy. All of my office jobs were comedy. Do you <laughs> right. know what I'm saying? Like I was at the Daily Show. So it was a really, I, I basically, for me, it was like I came out of college. It was 22. Uh, I come from like, you know, Italian dad, Jewish mom, Long Island. Like we're from like LA. Like I know my roots. You know, mm-hmm. they're all like working people. My grandfather's like everybody worked where I'm from. So I wasn't like for me to be my brother and I were like went away to college, which was like a big deal in my family. And uh to come home from four years of college and be like, now I'm going to tell jokes like that just wasn't even an option. I like my I just it felt like I couldn't do that uh because my i like i said i come from like my dad's the kind of guys like get a job right. you know like get it but like he, if i would became an electrician that would have been a sweet play and i'm not <laughs> knocking electricians it's a great job but he didn't care that i had a passion for something he was just like get a good job hmm. head to toe many's you know you're done right and uh so i got a job at 22 at the daily show in 1999 as a production assistant was that kilborn or stewart it was stewart john stewart had just started in January of 99, I started in July of 99, okay. 22 years old. Nobody knew what The Daily Show was. Um, what was your first job there? I was a production assistant, which is just 
runner, you know, mm-hmm. like just doing whatever. I was making 400 bucks a week before taxes, living with my parents, mm-hmm. you know, commuting on the Long Island Railroad. I uh, did that for about a year and a half. And then uh, I, I thought I'd get to The Daily Show. I'm not lying. I thought I'd get to The Daily Show. Um, and I got a job there. I heard about an opening. A friend of mine's sister's friend worked there. I don't know. I just went in for an interview. Turned out the PA who had been there just quit. So they told me later on that, like, as long as I was, like, breathing and not drooling, like, I was getting the gig, you know, because they just desperately needed, like, a, you know, 22-year-old young person to run around and get props and things around the city, which is what you do as a PA. So um, That is the secret of comedy is timing. Timing. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And uh, so I thought, honestly, though, man, I thought six months in. These guys would see how funny I was. Mm-hmm. I'd be like on the show, right in the show. You know, it's like the 22 year mentality. Right. If you don't have to do anything, you just get discovered, you know? And, uh, now nah, that did not happen. I was there 14 years. You how? Know? Okay. Because your path is either, uh, the most, uh, jealousy inducing path to other people in comedy or the most obvious path. No, I think in it's, comedy. I think it's neither of those. Really? I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't regret spending 14 years of my life at The Daily Show, but I could tell you that it 100% impacted the thing I ultimately wanted to be doing, which Mm -hmm. was stand-up. So I started doing stand-up when I started working at The Daily Show, but in order to kind of build one career, you you only have so many hours in the day. So, you know, I I was working long days at The Daily Show. I was working like Mm -hmm. 12 hours a day there, and and then I slowly moved through the ranks. That's the thing is like, that little moment where I uh, had like that, they saw me right. making a joke and they were like, come on, be on the show. That never happened, ever. So I, I, I literally, I did every job in that building. I was like the footage librarian. I was like the like, I, I mean, you name it, right. like the grunt labor and it's a footage and heavy show. So I, I came through that department that was making all those montages and finding all those clips. You know, people were like, who finds those clips? Like I did. And it's and it, and it, and before it, they hate before they came up with actual software that helps. Yes, now helps we had it. no software. The software right, was the sit and watch it. And um, man, it just took it just took the it it just aged me, you know, because all of that stuff. You watch the Daily Show and you go, man, they sift through all that radiation and they give mm-hmm. us these golden nuggets of joy. Like, yeah, man, but we were on the front lines of that radiation, so I just got like it just so it it drained me, you know. And then on top of having that full time job, so I'd go out at night and do stand up, but then you know. I didn't always have the juice for it, man. I didn't always have the energy. I was tired. I was tired. And then I started really focusing on my career there. I had a moment. I, Lewis Black used to take me out on the road with him pretty early on. Oh, um, okay. He took, so I had this really weird stand-up career where I would um, was doing stand-up very part-time. I would right. go like months without doing it. But then a guy like Lewis Black, because I used to find the footage for his segment, which was like just find crazy stories. Okay. Was like, yeah, I'll take you out with me. And, and I, I had no business opening for this dude. Like, I was getting, I would go, I was at like a room like the Stress Factory in New Jersey, which is a tough room. Yeah. I had to go back years later and redeem myself. But uh, I opened for <laughs> Much him. Much like Margaret Show. Yes, because I was like 24 <laughs> years old. And I um, was opening for Lou doing seven minutes mm-hmm. in front of him. He was still doing clubs. So that's how long ago this was. And uh, man, I was out there. I think back to it now. I can't even believe I was out there 
in like a V-neck sweater with my collar popped through it, being like, "Hey guys, like you guys ever take the you know the L train from 14th to Union Square and notice the guys selling bat?" And people were like, "Suck my dick!" You right. know, like people were like, "That room to me at that time felt very much like the bar in Roadhouse that Swayze was bouncing at. Like that's what it felt like to me." And I was and I was uh, the pride of New Brunswick, New Jersey. Yeah, I love that the club, Swiss and 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 I and I, I've been there since, and I love mm-hmm. it. I always I, I love going there now. But at that time, man, when you're 24 years old and it's a tough room you know and you're no, i had no right. business being there so lou just took me there and, and i went in the green room afterwards i'm like oh this guy's gonna kill me i barely know him. and he was like ah yeah i brought you here to bomb ha ah. like he just wanted me to right. bomb because his whole thing was he was like a sink or swim kind of mentor <laughs> so he would just throw me in these absurd situations but then over time i started going out with him on the road for real like i was on his tour with him for a while mm-hmm. on his bus and we'd go to big venues man i was playing 3500 seat theaters um and i'd kill you know i'd, I'd do well you know not I, i'd fairly consistently i do well so i started feeling like oh, i'm pretty good and then i come back from like a like you know eight, six weeks on the road with lewis and i go up to like you know um oh, i can't even think of the name of the place now because i blocked it out of my head but the place <laughs> on the east side the comedy club on the upper east side comic strip comic strip and mm-hmm. i go there and i like audition for lucian hold yeah. who was the manager right. at the time he was the legendary yeah he was booker. like the legendary ma- booker and i yeah. go in i'm like fucking i'm gonna I'm going to get pats at this club. Mm-hmm. I just crushed in front of like 3,500 people in like the round, <laughs> at like in like up in like, you know, uh, Hyannisport, you know, and, uh, and I just, you know, and I, and I had, in my opinion, had a good set and then he sits me down and he's telling me this long story about why I'm not ready. And I'm like, motherfucker, you know? <laughs> so I had such a, that's why I was so people comedy. So much of it is just like rejection because you, you can't ever expect anything to go your way. Right. Um, so I don't know. And then ultimately Lou asked me if I wanted to be his opener like full time. I was like 26. I made the call to stay at the Daily Show. Um, I thought I had like a pretty clear path. I, I got uh, this bug on me at the Daily Show, man, when I first started there where I felt like the writers who were working there were really – and maybe, again, it was mi- more in my head than reality, but it mm-hmm. felt real. And they were like really mean and like they were not cool and they made me feel shitty and like I wasn't funny and like I didn't wasn't worthy mm-hmm. of their time. So I got this, like, like I said, I'm half a time. I got this, like, vendetta. You know, I was like, these motherfuckers will burn. You know, like, I got this, like, I'm going to run this place someday. Right. You'll see. And I did. I ended up running the place. <laughs> but it took me a lot longer than I had thought. Well, you, you know? were this punk straight out of college. I was just straight out of pu- college punk. So, yeah, so by the end of it, I was running the Daily Show. It was mm-hmm. just me and John Stewart were the two executive producers. Well, when you get a moment of zen when you leave, that's how you know yeah, went well. you've accomplished. Yeah, it went all right. You and get your own moment of I zen when you moment. leave. Yeah, I never thought about that. But, you know, it's and, uh, and I... Uh, so I went, yeah, so I ended up doing pretty well there, but I got to a point mm-hmm. where I just went, you know, I, I, you know, they were paying me all right. It was the first time in my life I was like, oh, you know, it's not like a sitcom where like you make money. Like a late night show is not like a sitcom. Like I'm not walking around like Larry David. Like I'm taking the subway places and staying in shitty mo- right. hotels and motels when I go do stand up. But it was the first time in my life I was like, oh, I'm being paid like an adult. And I had a good job and I was running the daily show and I left because I was like, I'm not doing my thing. It was, it was this really weird moment where it was like, Everything about I, what I've done, mm-hmm. I've achieved and wanted to do. But here I am looking at it going, yeah, this isn't really what I wanted to do to begin with. Well, this you was were, all a sidetrack. And you know? were behind the camera. Yeah, I was. I was definitely Not until behind. Nightly Show did you really Yeah, I got on camera at the um, Well, you know, I bring up the career path because it seems like from all the comedians I've ever known or ever interviewed over the years, either they know right away what they want to do and they're already interning for Conan or interning at Saturday Night Live when they're in high school and college and they're jumping straight into show business or they have no idea and they sort of stumble into stand up and then they flounder along until they start to figure themselves out. Yeah. And then they rise up the ranks. You kind of 
yeah, straight out of college, you end up in this. Yeah. What turns out to be turns out to be it was like it was it was turns really out to was, be man. A, like a crown jewel yeah, I, actually, job. I'm not lying, man. I got a job out of college because uh, I had interned at Letterman, and I I didn't have any connections in the TV business. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a friend in college, even going to B, BU. I, but I made connections at BU. So in other words, with Howard Stern no, and Bill yeah, O'Reilly, yeah, none of the yeah O'Reilly and I are tight, uh, and Rory Albany, yes, Howard indeed. Stern, Bill yeah. O'Reilly, but and Howard Rory Stern actually Albany. graduated from my high school too, which is funny. But oh, okay, um, see, but, so there's yeah, they, was that was that nobody, in your head? No, when you went Stern, to BU, no, it wasn't. But people used to bring it up all the time that you. Okay. but uh, I um, I, I I no no joke. I got a friend of mine from college, mm-hmm. sister's roommate was like someone who worked at Letterman as an assistant, and she put my resume in, and then I got an interview, and then I got that internship, and then that same person, uh, my friend from college, was working at Who Wants to Be a Millionaire right when we graduated as the assistant to. And the, that was the beginning of. Yes, it was before it went on the air, and I got a job there as a runner for the executive producers. Mm-hmm. This British guy, Michael Davies, who's right. since gone on to, you know, great wealth and fame, yeah. and. uh and I was like running, like he'd be like, Rory, I'm in the mood for yogurt, but I want a specific type of, you know. And I'd be like running around the city looking for strawberries and yogurt. Mm-hmm. And you I didn't was, ask him final answer. Yeah, no, because the show didn't <laughs> exist yet. So I was, I'm not lying. I was there three weeks, mm-hmm. got this opportunity to do that. I got went in for the Daily Show mm-hmm. interview, got that job, and I left the the without hesitation because I wanted to do comedy. Right. And like a month later, Millionaire launched, and it was the biggest show in the world. And I remember calling my brother and be like, "I made a huge mistake, dude. <laughs> I'm a I'm the footage guy at this freaking. I'm logging tapes at this freaking cable show. Nobody heard of. Meanwhile, Steve Carell was on the show. Colbert mm-hmm. was on the show. My fourth day at the Daily Show, they were doing a shoot on the roof, uh, for this thing they used to do called the Summer Spectacular, which I don't even think is online. But they were like these. Best of specials that okay. the network used to make them see. We call them repack mm-hmm. specials. Yeah. So the idea was you shoot wraparounds in the studio or with the They just did one for uh, Trevor. Probably, yeah. Uh, last Monday when they did uh, election. Right. Re- so election they, wrap-up. Yeah, so they basically – and then you shoot these wraparounds, mm-hmm. which means you basically just shoot one of the correspondents doing some silly thing. Okay. And then they toss to – pre-existing things you've done on the show. It's like yeah. those old... Remember on like Family Ties when they sit around and be like, remember that time Alex yeah. stole the kangaroo? And clip then they show. Yeah, it's a clip show. So um, they were doing <laughs> one of those. It was like my fourth day mm-hmm. and I was on the roof helping them out, like bringing up all the props. And it was Corell and Colbert and they were in a kiddie pool wearing water wings, splashing around. Mm-hmm. And I remember standing there going, Man, these two guys are really funny. What the hell are they doing on this shitty show? You know what I mean? Nobody knows what this show is. These guys should be on Saturday Night Live. You know, I <laughs> little did I know that they, you know they were uh, on everyone's radar, right. obviously, you know, they had been at SNL actually, uh, and were Ace and Gary, of course, yeah. the ambiguous. But, um, you know, <laughs> so it was definitely, it definitely started to smell like, oh, this is special pretty early on. But I definitely was thinking about myself only and like, how am I going to fare here? I wasn't worried right, about So when Who Wants to Be a Millionaire showed up with Regis in prime time. Oh my God. And it was ABC. all people talked about. Yeah. I was like, I made a huge mistake. I came I'm close to getting the, on the show once. I'm the sucker. Yeah, really? Yeah. Being a guest? Yeah. Oh, back when you. Yeah, you had to like. You had, you had to do to, it on the phone. You had to touch tone. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow. Was back like, when phones existed. I was, I was <laughs> like to be, potentially be flown from Washington. I was outside of Seattle, and I was like, I can be flown to New York. And That'd be like, amazing. But even then, you weren't weren't guaranteed to be on the show. Anyhow, no, 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 no. no. They had to still pick you from the yeah. pool of people who. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. I wasn't allowed to be on the show because I had worked there. Right. So I was. I was. Uh, you know. The fix was in for me. But it was weird. It was <laughs> just, rigged. when I look at back at it now, it's mm-hmm. just like I never, so I was doing stand-up simultaneously the whole time, but never at the level. I mean, people. Had I, you done stand-up before? No, I did stand-up once in college. Okay. I, I see people now, man, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds. In 18 Boston? Year olds. You went to- yeah, I did, went to like, uh, 
Dick Doherty's comedy stop and did yeah, a yeah. set. Okay. Uh, in the vault? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It was a long time yeah, ago, yeah. and I okay. smoked a lot of pot in between. <laughs> but, uh, yes, and then I did um, – I, I did a, I actually, the first set I ever did in New York was at the Comedy Cellar, mm-hmm. and nobody there believed me when I tell them that there was a dude who had a $5 uh, bringer show that was on at like 5.30 at the Comedy Cellar, and I went on. Yeah. And I brought, you have to bring three people, and I brought two, because my third person didn't show up, uh, and he was the one who convinced me to do it, actually. Do you know Dave Rubin? He's a comic. He's uh no. He's got like, he's, he's, he's got a good Twitter thing. He's got like a TV, he had a TV show for a while on that Larry King network. He's a really funny guy, but he never showed up. So uh, I told the dude, I was like, can I just pay you the five bucks mm-hmm. so I can do my five minutes? And I went on stage and I and I did a spot at the cellar, not realizing at that moment that by the time I got back there, I was going to have to go through a lot, <laughs> a lot more, like, you know, a lot more um, obstacle courses. No, back in the day, they used to have bringer shows and they used to have a late night mm-hmm. thing for up and coming people to yeah. go on at like two in the morning. Yes. Uh, uh-huh. But that so I did that once and then. I don't know. And then I just started doing a lot of little shows around the city. Gotham used to have really good bringer shows. Jessica Curson would run them. So I, I, you know, I ended up, I was doing stand up fairly consistently, but not the way you're supposed to, you know, like right. you can't work 10, 11 hours a day, 12 hours a day. Yeah. What be was... tired and then go and do it and expect to be good at it. What, know? what, what are the hours for a grunt? Grunt hours show? were. What you, I mean, to me, the only way to not be a grunt is to put in the time, you know, and that's and like people put in stuff, even more hours. Yeah, more. I mean, I, you know, I know people now who are like, yeah, you know, they're, they're not paying me for overtime. I'm like, yeah, it's called fucking double down <laughs> and, and like let them know you want it, you know. Mm-hmm. So I was there all the time, man. I was dedicated to the Daily Show. Like whatever, how long? Whatever they gave. So I'd get in at nine in the morning, and sometimes mm-hmm. I'd leave at nine, ten at night. I mean, I was there all day, you know. And uh, a lot of times I'd go right up to do a spot somewhere, and I was tired and. um you know, trying to get on stage, which was really hard to do in New York because it's a competitive market. So a lot of times I'd be yeah. going out to people's like bar shows in Staten Island and stuff, and there'd be three people in a basement, and I was like, "Fuck!" But all the other dudes slept till four, you know. So I was always like, "Man, right. I feel like I'm competing against." And again, that's not a competition, but when you first start doing it, it feels like a competition. When you first oh, there are plenty of people our age who still feel it's a yeah, competition. Yeah, but those people aren't good. Like in other <laughs> words, people who are good at it start mm-hmm. to realize that if you're good, there's room for whoever. There's no there's no cap. Right. It's not like there's somebody standing up. Like, we got enough. Like if you're good, you'll find an audience. If you're not, you know, maybe you will anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But there's definitely you get to a point, which is what I love about the comedy seller. Is like all the people there, like. It's a very supportive group of comics. Like when people there have a special coming out, people are like, "How the fuck did that guy get a special?" Like, dude, let's retweet it. Like, put it out there. Like, that's awesome. Congrats. Like, it's a very, I mean, as for comedy, I would say confident group of people because they know they're good. There's not not to say that there aren't frustrations around comics. It's a frustrating thing to do to yourself to be at it as long as you know I have or other people have, and you know, you struggle a lot. You know, I. People don't show up to my shows, you know, things like that. Like, I'm, well, again, part of it is I haven't been doing it at the right. level I'm supposed to be, but it's uh, it's definitely a, a mind fuck of a of a career choice, you know. <laughs> so when you're around other comics, uh, it feels like you're in a safe harbor. Right. So in the beginning, you're working ten, twelve hours a day as a footage guy, mm-hmm. runner, PA. Yeah, well, first it was runner, PA. Then I got promoted to footage guy. Okay. But it was, you know. What were you all doing? All that meant I didn't have to leave the building, but I was still doing grunt work. What were you doing uh, in that clip that was shown in your goodbye moment of zen? Okay, so that right happened here. early on. Yeah. yeah. Ha- early on, I got to be on the show. Um, Vance the Generous, who's actually Ellen's brother, was a... Uh, he was a correspondent. Yeah, he was a correspondent. Really funny guy. Really mm-hmm. dry sense of humor. Very, very funny. And um, our field pieces on The Daily Show used to be just much 
sillier and like less point of view driven and much. The, yeah, more they like, used the the. Well, the original old Daily version, Show was just mean. The original yeah. version used to be a lot more prankster. Yeah, the old Daily Show was was basically like a Whitney Brown going into like a place filled with you know like mentally challenged people and being an asshole. And John Stewart got there was like, yeah, that ain't gonna be on TV <laughs> with my name on it. That's just mean. So, but it, there was still a lot of like kind of silly pieces, yeah. you know, being happening. They were funny, uh, but they didn't really start to evolve into like you know what you think of as a of a Daily Show piece now. Right, but uh. Yeah, so the piece was a, a guy had invented a portable toilet um, called the Pack and Potty. It was all because of the millennium. Everyone thought the world was going to oh, end. Oh, yeah, Y2K that? virus Y2K, was yeah. going to wipe us So it out. was so that when the world ended and toilets stopped mm-hmm. working, you had a way. It's also if you have to, like, take a poop on your way to work. Right. So I, I was the, the reenactor. It happens. I walked through Times Square and, like, sat down on it and, you know, read a newspaper and pretended to poop. So that happened pretty early on. I was like, shit, they're going to put me on the show. This is cool. Uh, never, this was before you got promoted to footage guy. Yeah, it never happened again. <laughs> it just—I was there a long time. The only other time I got on was like my last week. We did a bit where uh, with chat where I played Smokey the Bear and I talked to John Stewart and I was like smoking butts and mm-hmm. I I did like the one thing I can do, which is be like, yeah, John, I don't know about that. That's no good. Like I was just a dick at Smokey the Bear, but it's funny because it ended up being a Your funny Long bit. Island roots came out. Yeah, my oh, they always come out and. uh and I, uh, that was the only time I was on, but I wasn't really on. I was in a bear suit, you know, okay. but I did a full chat with John back and forth and it was funny and uh, people liked it. Um, but then I left. So but it wasn't was, like a moment where there John was, a was good like 14 years in between. Oh, it was a good 14 like- year. Yeah. There was two little pieces of bread at the end of a very thick 14 year sandwich of shit, you know? What, and, um, okay. What yeah. was your, what was your stand up like in the very beginning? I mean, in the beginning for me, I wasn't even, uh, worried about. And it's funny because I became uh, fairly close with Dimitri Martin because uh, he used to do stuff on The Daily Show. And I, because right. at, at some point I became a, a, a producer. Yeah. So I used to produce yeah. Dimitri's stuff mm-hmm. and, and I produced Lewis's stuff. Like I produced a lot of the side segments with some really cool people. And Dimitri and I became pretty close. And it was so interesting for me because I was at a point with my stand up at that time where I was really just focused on being good on stage. Um, I wasn't really thinking about material as much. So in the beginning, I think a lot of my stuff was more, um, you know, I, but again, it's like when, when like a 25 year old's doing stand up. And that's not to say there's some, I mean, like Ricky Velez is 26. Like that, that dude is like a powerhouse mm-hmm. already. So I just wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have that like swagger or confidence. So I was doing a lot more like stuff about, you know, like living or in this, or like, a, I'm trying to think of a bit I used to do. Like, oh, I used to do the thing about, uh, look, I like, you know, I was looking for an apartment. So I went through the experience of having to read. And this is back when you had to like, you know, use the newspaper and it always had the listings and it would say like, it had all those codes. It would say like HW, mm. you know, hardwood floors or like right. full kitchen FK. So Washer, I dryer. do a bit about how hard it was to find an apartment and it had stuff in it that were like WB, like the walls were bleeding. Like it was like all the, all the shitty shit that I mm-hmm. had to explore. Things like that. Or, um, but they weren't like, um, you know, they weren't really bits that were, I was like, oh, this is gonna, this is a keeper. It was really just an exercise in me getting up in front of people. Like I'd, I'd do well. I could make them laugh, but it was, for me, it was always about, I just got to get, I got to get to a place on stage where I don't feel like I'm on stage. I got to get to a place on stage where I feel like I'm me at my funniest when I'm with my buddies doing my thing that I know how to do. And that's the goal. It takes a long, yeah, but it's, boy, it takes a long time. Everybody, everybody is trying to recreate that experience they first had when they realized they're funny. Yeah. Which is just being with your friends yep. and they're laughing mm-hmm. and like, just, well, how do I on, do that? And just being on a roll. Oh, it's hard, you know, <laughs> and not only is it hard, but, um, 
there's so many things occurring when you're on stage that aren't occurring when you're hanging out with your <laughs> friends that like you 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 have to learn about you know I, I mean I just remember in the beginning hearing like a fork drop like you have this heightened sense of awareness when you're on stage yeah. so you hear a fork drop in the back of the room but nobody else does because they're just an audience in a room where forks drop all the time but you're like hey hold on to your fork and people are like what Who's this, what the fuck is this guy talking about? you know and you just got to learn I, I feel like stand-ups are one of those things where you just got to get smacked in the head a lot like yeah. i still do i mean i still go because if you, i feel like if you're not bombing you're not getting better because it's like you're not pushing yourself to try that next thing where i'm like all right i want to give this i want to give this run like i still put myself in situations that are terrible for myself as my self-esteem and my ego but i'm like but i gotta get through this you know and sometimes they just come about like i was in atlanta a couple of weeks ago and i was i had seven i had to do seven shows mm -hmm. at a comedy club that punchline holds probably 250 people so for me to sell that many tickets i would need to be more famous that's just a fact okay like right. that's a lot of seats seven shows one thursday two friday three saturday one sunday turns out the weekend i was there Without any of this, I would have struggled to sell out any of those. I mean, all of those shows mm -hmm. or any. But the weekend I was there, Amy Schumer was there playing the Spectrum, which is like the twenty-five thousand seat arena that mm -hmm. that you know um, that they have. Uh, Louis Black was there um, playing a theater that holds forty-five hundred people. Mm -hmm. Roy Wood Jr. was there taping his special at, at two nights on Friday, two shows mm -hmm. that at a theater that held fourteen hundred. Maria Bamford was there. Dude, Hassan Minaj was there. <laughs> so like you name it. Like even I'm like, well I've done Daily Show, mm -hmm. Nightly Show, that'll help. It's like now nah, Roy and Hassan are there and they're currently on the show and you never were on the show day, you know? So you name the like the odds stacked mm -hmm. against me for an audience. And then I found out from the club owner that like historically it's their worst we get in the history of crowds. So I was in a situation where I was like, all right, well I got seven shows to do and I had some pretty light crowds. It mm -hmm. just happens. But you get to a point where you're a professional and you go, it doesn't matter. If there's eight people in here or 118 or, 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 or a thousand, it doesn't matter. You got to give them, the, you can't punish the people who showed up because the other people didn't. Right. So, you know, I had a couple of shows with 20 people and I, and I would just go out there and kill it. You know, it just like, it doesn't matter to me. It's 20 people, but I had one show, the last show and it was after six long, it was a long weekend, but I did all right. Mm -hmm. I held my own and there was one, there was one night, the late night show. Where a busload of, you know, people, fifty-year-old conservative white dudes came in. They were on like a bachelor party or mm -hmm. a birthday, a fiftieth birthday party, and they were just dicks. You know, they just didn't like the Jew from New York telling them shit. Yeah, whatever it was, they just didn't like it. And um, but I, but they were like a donut hole. Like everyone else did, but there was like a donut hole of like ten dudes mm -hmm. who were just staring at me. You know, and I was at one point I was like, yeah, I guess if you just got to do it, and they don't like you. But the last show, man, Sunday. Atlanta, outside of Atlanta too. It's not like I was like it's in like Buckhead, Georgia, mm -hmm. you know, like eight people scattered around the room. It's like seven thirty on a Sunday. I've been doing this a long time, man. It's been a long time since I've worked in front of eight people who like felt like they accidentally came in there for like a meeting and they were like, "Is this guy gonna talk?" Right. You know, like it was. That's what felt. Like. And man, it was. I I usually, you know, I'll do an hour plus at a lot of these rooms. Mm -hmm. They'll let you do whatever you want. I did like a tight 45 and I was like, see you motherfuckers later. So it just, it, but you have to right. get up and do it. Like you got to strap on, you know, your boots and, uh, and, and, and like, and just, and just, I, I can't say man up because that's like sexist now, but you know what I'm saying? You got a cowboy up or whatever the hell, like right. the politically cowgirl up. But, uh, yeah, so it's part of it is just getting better. And the only way to get better is to end up in those situations. And the only way to end up in those situations is to, Put yourself in them. Well, you never know when you're going to end up with a room, a scattered room of eight people. No. 
or a ro- rowdy, raucous crowd of eight thousand. Yes. Well, I and, know that, and that I can be end just, up with but that can be just as that can be just as oh, absolutely nightmarish. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that the the bottom line is you have to hold your own in any scenario, you know. And it's like that's when it gets. I mean, that's, to me, the next level thing for me with stand up is has been learning that the last couple of years where. Five five years ago, two even two years ago, probably two three years ago, I would get up in front of eight people and be like, "Well, I know this is awkward," but now, like now, it's just like, "No, here's the show." You know, thanks for coming. Right. You but, know? but you've seen the. There's plenty of YouTube footage out there about crowds, outdoor festival crowds turning on a superstar headliner. Of course. <laughs> You're like, what? yeah. You're like, oh, oh yeah. That's, I'm glad it's, it's not me. Oh, it's a blood sport, man. <laughs> yeah, it can. It can turn. Yeah. Even even uh, sometimes sometimes. The bigger name guys, uh, and again, people, not guys, but people, mm-hmm. um, are, uh, more targeted because people have a certain expectation of what they want to see. I remember that, remember that Chappelle thing that happened a couple of years yeah. ago? People are like yelling at him. I'm like, you're like, that dude is like a god. Yeah. He's like a god of comedy. And uh, like, you're mad. Dude, you're not doing it right. Like, you're mad you're not doing he, the thing we expect. It's like, Jesus. You're mad that he paused for more than five seconds. <laughs> he like took a sip of water. Like, kill yourself, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, look what happened to Schumer. Uh, that yeah. was the, the next day after, uh, and I actually texted Amy a picture of, uh, the six people I had or eight people I had. I was like, how was your week? <laughs> you know what I mean? How did you deal with this? Oh, special? that's right. Yeah. That, yeah, Atlanta, she was, that was the one Atlanta, like, yeah. yeah. I was like, how's your crowd? All right. <laughs> so you're, your crowd good? Cause I got a small number of people. Got a couple of, got a couple of, uh, homeless guys who are just in here for warmth. <laughs> now working, working on shows like the daily show and then the nightly show that can have, I guess, one of two primary effects on your standup. It can either really make your standup more political and pointed or you can go the other way and have your stand up be everything you would never do yeah for TV which uh, which which do you I mean it's to it's kind of the lamest answer which is a little of both mm-hmm. one thing i can tell you i got from the daily show is i learned and this is really why i stayed as long as i did um, cuz i was working very closely with john stewart and that was like working with steve jobs at the top of his game you know i mean the, the dude you were wozniak Yes, yes, yeah. No, I was, I was like, uh, Frank, the guy who would, uh, sometimes see Mr. Jobs in the office. But, you know, I, like, I, uh, I was learning from him in a way that, um, can't be replicated because to be around a guy who's at the top of his game at the exact right moment, who's as brilliant as he is and see how he handled things and learn how to run a show, write jokes and make decisions on the fly. Is is an education you can't pay for. It just either happens or it doesn't. So it's to me that's the trade off. That's what I traded because I did lose years of stand. I, I look at it like the Malcolm Gladwell thing of hours, right? Like he says it's ten thousand hours to master right. something. So just mathematically speaking, because I spent so much time at the Daily Show, I probably put you know fourteen thousand hours into like learning to write, run, and produce comedy, mm-hmm. um, comedy shows, TV shows, and I've and I've put you know. 8,000 hours in a standup. So now I'm closing out that last 2,000 hours, you know, and, um, that's where I'm at, you know, and I'm, and I'm, I'm pretty close. I feel like I'm pretty close to hitting that 10,000 hour mark of, oh, this guy's good, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, so my act, yeah, I do, but what I do and what I really learned at the Daily Show, which nobody believes me is I hit both sides pretty hard. Like the Daily Show taught me that. Like when we watched stuff at the Daily Show, there was no directive. There's always this rumor that, you know, we were this like, uh, you know, bastion of liberalism where like John would come in and be like, how are we going to get the Republicans? But that's never what happened. It would just be like we'd watch stuff and we'd make fun of it. So it was like we were like kind of the wise asses in the back of the classroom right. that weren't, didn't really care who was teaching. 
Well, you were making fun of the news too. As much that, as... that to me was was one of the biggest things I felt I, I missed when I left was we were a real watchdog on CNN and Fox and MSNBC. And right. like, I mean, there's a really sa- there's a satisfaction to being to sitting at home one night and watching O'Reilly say some bullshit thing, and then going the next morning and be like, check this out, <laughs> and then it's on TV that night, and right. you know, and and people are laughing at it. And you feel like oh, I got at least. I put something back out there, you know, that's like instead of throwing my shoe at the TV. Right, which is what everybody else had to resort that's, to. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why I think The Daily Show touched so many people because there was a period of time, not that it's it's gone. I mean, it's mm-hmm. probably worse now than it's ever been, but there was a period of time where it really flipped. That that uh, The Daily Show flipped when the Bush-Gore election happened because I was 22, 23 at the time. And what was your job then? Uh, that's right when I, st- I was a year in, so I was probably the footage librarian guy. Okay. Meaning I was like logging all the footage as it came in from the right. Associated Press newsfeed, showing stuff to the writers. I would bring them like transcripts of stuff. I'd say, hey, I think this is funny. Like, we don't give a right. shit what you think. Just give us the tapes. Like, anytime I tried to speak up, you know, other than Lewis, Lewis Black was the only one. I'd be, I'd be in the meetings for his, uh, for his segment. It was me and J.R. Havlin and, and, and Paul Mercurio, who were also very funny stand-ups. And, uh, you know, I would talk, and the, those guys were more teasing, like Big mm-hmm. Brother teasing, but they were still mean as fuck. They'd just be like, <laughs> shut the fuck up, asshole. You know? But Lewis would be like, no, you shut up. Let him talk. What was that joke? And like, right. he didn't give a shit where the jokes came from. Uh, and there was this other producer there, Hank Gallo. Hank didn't care either. So I ended up getting jokes on the show really early on through Lewis, but not through – like John wasn't saying my shit for mm-hmm. a couple of years. But Lewis – I got a lot of jokes on Lewis's mm-hmm. segment, and that's when I started building up the confidence of like, oh, I'm in the right place. Like, I can do this. Um but you know, I, I, uh, so that's what I was doing when that Bush Gore stuff happened. And, uh, without a doubt, um, I saw a turn in the reason people wanted to see the show. Like that was just a moment in time mm-hmm. where people didn't understand what was happening. And it was such an absurd moment in history that was like, what do we do? How do we process this? And John Stewart was like, I've got a way, you know, and we just, <laughs> You know, hanging Chaz, making, you know, yeah, Gore fucking was... making out with his wife. I still remember that. I still remember the tape number of Gore making out with his wife. That's how many times I pulled that tape. Yeah. Like it's like What's, stock tape four, six, six, seven. You know, like I just remember it. Because, DNC 2000. Dude, yeah. But it's like I just because there were so many days where like we need Gore kissing. I was we, like, need gore on, we need some Gore on Gore. Gore on Gore. Yeah. And, and I also just learned being there about the reality of being an adult. In the mm-hmm. television comedy business, which is, I think what most people don't realize when they're 22 is that you're not going to get feedback as an adult. You're used to an education process. And this is something John always used to say, but we, we would talk to the interns. Uh, we do like a little thing with the interns at the end of the semester. He and I would sit and talk to them and like, um, you know, he, he always said this and I, I couldn't agree more, but it's like you don't get grades, right? Like I remember, mm-hmm. I'll never forget this moment. I stayed there one night till like three in the morning. Putting together Alan Keyes. I don't know if you remember Alan Keyes, but he yeah, was. Yeah, he was a, the Republican yeah, he was conservative. Republican because he was well, like he was the, the Herman Cain of like yeah, 2000. He was the, uh, 2004. He was the Ben Carson yeah, of, yeah, yeah 04. And, um, he had, uh, done a thing on The Tonight Show. Cause you know how these guys sing, like John Ashcroft? There's always a couple yes. of these singing senators. So Alan Keyes sang. So he did mm-hmm. a, a song on The Tonight Show. <laughs> and we, we stayed, I stayed with an editor. And this is back when like doing something like this was technically challenging now right the technology it. is a lot yeah which really uh, which really the ad- advanced the daily show in a big way but uh w- we stayed we put him in a heart floating around like we did this whole thing of him singing and it was like a big build it was a big render a big build mm-hmm. it took a long time and uh the next day we came into um 
work and it was ready to go. And, you know, I was back in my little room doing my footage stuff and rehearsal came. And when I didn't, I, I wasn't in rehearsal, you know, only like top people were, mm-hmm. I mean, I was eventually, but at the mm-hmm. time I wasn't. And, uh, and they played the clip, the thing I stayed all night with the editor and made. They played it, rehearsed it, whatever. Then after rehearsal, we went to do a rewrite, which was like a room we'd sit in and we'd rewrite the script in like an hour. And that's when you see John Stewart like in a world where you're like, motherfucker, that dude's good. And, uh, but I wasn't in the rewrite at the time, of mm-hmm. course. I was pretty early on in my right. time there. And then the show started to tape. So I was sitting in my office watching the show tape, which is having in the studio downstairs, but I yeah. didn't always go and watch it in the studio because you don't want to be in the way. And, uh, I, and they just didn't, they just cut the thing I made. Mm. So when, so when, and again, like I'm 23 years old, so I'm assuming after the show ends, John and Ben, who at the time was the executive producer, are going to come into my office, you know, my shared offices. Like, you know, I was in this big right. room with footage dudes are going to come in and be like, Hey man, thanks so much for staying last night. It was funny. We just didn't have room for it. Like here was our justification in cutting it. And I just didn't see them again for like two weeks, you know? And I was like, Oh shit, they're not going to say anything. And I'm like, Oh, that's what this is. This is not about me. Mm-hmm. This is not, this is about the show. And this is about like a larger thing than my own satisfaction here. The show is not here to serve me. I'm here Mm -hmm. to serve the show. I'm here to show that I can give them what they need to make the show great. And that was a big turning point for me because that's when I realized, oh, that's what I need to do to succeed here and learn the voice of the show, learn John's voice, and I did. you know. And then ultimately I ran the place. Yeah, so what what were the jobs in between footage Uh, guy and I mean, I was a segment producer. producer. I was in a... uh, You go footage guy to... Yeah, I was an associate producer. I mean, the order I don't even remember, but I was an AP, yeah. which is a catch-all. Mm-hmm. There's, a, which is a catch-all title. Uh, that's a joke. And there's a couple of movies with jokes like that. But uh, mm-hmm. that movie had come out that year. Funny movie with Alec Baldwin. State is it State in Maine? Where yeah. he's making a movie up in Maine, and he's like a drunk idiot, and he's like. Uh, and the ongoing joke in the movie is like every time he makes a mistake in this small town. The producer of the movie comes up to like the townspeople. He's like, I'll make you an AP. I'm going to make you an associate producer. Like, and I had just got the title and I remember watching the movie and be like, well, that makes me feel like shit. Uh, but it's a catch all title. Right. So that was like a way of them saying, we like what you're doing. Here's a new title. So you can have a business card and like try to get laid, but you're really doing the same thing. Okay. So I was in that footage world in different capacities for a long time. Uh, segment producer, you know, um, um, <laughs> so I was in that world for a long time. I, uh, I was, I, you know, I was in that back room and then ultimately I became sort of a senior producer mm-hmm. who was managing that department. Okay. And so that was like 2005. I was this guy who sort of, they basically said to me, the department is yours to run as you would see fit and you can have whoever you want in that room. And we had just moved to a new building. Okay. Um, so I had a bigger room and they said, you could take any of the, any of the people here you want mm-hmm. as your team build a team and make this. So I did, I put together this little badass team of dudes and, um, and we just started doing something different than it had been in the past because we were given the opportunity. It was kind of a moment for me where I had a conversation with John and Ben. And I said, there's a lot of the way we're producing this show. That's backwards, which is the writers are saying, here's what we need. And we're looking for it versus you saying, Hey, I got five funny guys down in that room now who can find- let us bring to you what we think works. And then all you guys got to do is take it and write it. Right. Just so yeah. It. Now there was a, you know, anytime you try to change a system that's in place, um, it's, 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 it's challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did. And there, there was like the name of the room I was in was called the post production room, 
which drove me nuts because we weren't post-producing. We weren't doing <laughs> stuff after. So we were producing <laughs> all the in-studio. So we changed the name to studio production. Mm-hmm. And everyone made fun of me. They're like, oh, yeah, you just changed the name. I'm like, you'd be surprised, man, in a management capacity how sometimes little things like that make a big difference. I mean, at the nightly show, we were having problems in our rewrite. And I just turned the table a different way and it, like, fixed it. You know, sometimes little things change the perception. Right, and the mood. And yeah, and you have to be, you know, you have to, it's kind of like a moment in time where you have to go, I'm going to be made fun of for making this suggestion because I work in a, literally everyone's a comedian. You know, that expression, like, where I used to right. work, it was. <laughs> and it's like, everyone's a comedian. Yeah, actually, everyone is a comedian. And, uh, yeah, so, but we did that and we changed the dynamic and we changed the, we changed how we approached the, producing the show. And at that moment, the technology came around to sort of sync up with that notion. We had right. TiVos now. We, we could had, actually find Yeah, so John easier. really started to lean on us as more of a creative source. And then him seeing me, him being able to say to me, hey, man, I want this thing. Just go make this thing and not have to micromanage. And just mm-hmm. don't, don't worry, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. That's when he and I really started to connect. I mean, he, he and I were always pretty tight because I was like, you know, like a wise-ass Long Island dude, and he's like a wise ass Jersey dude, and we used to play video games and stuff together, even when I was a PA. But he definitely always liked me, but I don't think he saw me in that capacity until like that was a turning point for me. And then at that moment, things kind of happened fairly quickly. Like after that, and once I started running that room, then I started being invited to like the big table, the bigger meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got like they raised my title to supervising producer, which means I was Emmy eligible because you have to have a certain level. I was of going to ask how many Emmys you have. I have a fair amount, but <laughs> I don't. You know, they're they're the show won them. I, but right. in other words, so I got Emmy eligibility at that point. Uh, I didn't have a writing credit yet, but then, um, you know, down the line, I got a writing credit because you know a writer strike happened, and I was caught in this horrible position of being a dude who was actually getting jokes on the show, but not officially a writer. Right. So it was like I had to like not work but i had to work because i was a, at that point a co-executive producer right. it was a mess so they you know then i got my writing credit um pretty quickly after that because i was like i can't i gotta quit like i can't go against the writers and right. i can't work here you know so what do i do you know uh so but that was a moment for me where it was it was kind of clear that when they put all the writers in the guild they didn't guild everyone who wrote they just gilded the people with writing credits at the time because there's a lot of field producers there that wrote yeah. that didn't get any go so it was like that whole thing became such a mess but all of that occurred in such a fast period of time between like 05 and 08 where all of a sudden i went from the footage guy to the guy running the footage room right. to the guy who was a supervising producer at the show to my desk being upstairs to like overseeing a whole chunk of the show. Then like the EP left and all of a sudden they needed more people at the top and there I was. Boom. Like it, it, some, like I, I, it was like, you know, they say it's like you got to have your resume ready. It was like that. Like I was standing on the sidelines just waiting for the coach to put me in. And John, by the way, didn't instantly put me in. Like he went ahead and hired like four dudes from the outside to be executive producers. And it was like, it was like a reality show. And then he put me up there. He's like, you might get it, but these four guys might. It was like, it was crazy. And at one point I went to his office. I'm like, am I staying up here? Am I going back down? You know, cause I got to quit if I'm going back down. So in the end, you know, I ended up being the guy. Like mm-hmm. I ended up running the show alone with just John. Me and him were the only two ones, uh, two people with an executive producing credit for like, I'd say the last two, two and a half years I was there, which meant a lot to me. And he was very steadfast about not wanting to give anyone else that credit while I had it. Cause he felt that we were now at this peak moment in time. And then I, for me, I was like, I'm so cool that this occurred, but I'm done. I'm done learning. I know how to do this job. I can do it left-handed and I'm a righty. So I got to go. What, you know? what was that moment that really solidified it for you? That it was, I think it just became, I started to realize that the machine 
so much of it of the the excitement was building the mm-hmm. process, building the machine. We, all right, so he and I, John and I, became pretty obsessed with taping at six p.m. because we felt like if we tape at six, the crowd is in the best position. We're keeping our hard deadlines throughout the day. It's a very hard thing to do, especially with a show with as many moving parts and right. a lot of production. So, discovering that process. What do we need to do? Shaving ten minutes here, cutting that meeting, putting that meeting here. You don't give, you don't do that anymore. You do, and when you're restructuring a place that's been in existence for a long time, and you were a guy who was a PA, and now you're telling people where they <laughs> got to be, it's hard, you know. So I really like had to endure some shit, you know. And I went through a lot of shit there as well as good. So I, I feel like I, I walked away from that place pretty calloused and comedy ready. And so for me, the nightly show, building the nightly yeah. show infrastructure was. It wasn't easy. Don't misunderstand me. And obviously the show got canceled. But the infrastructure, I can tell you that, ain't why it got canceled. Because that show ran tight, man. It was smooth. I like brought all the Daily Show stuff I learned plus some new things and built a very nice place. It was really cool, really good people. I like really missed the staff. I like weeded out the assholes pretty early on, you know. And I had help. I didn't do it alone. I mean, Amy Ozels used to run the... Uh, Fallon show was with me. So, you know, we, we did a very good job there in moving and it was similar enough to the daily show in its process that mm-hmm. I was able to build it pretty quick and pretty lean and pretty mean. And, you know, all of our other issues, you know, came from other places, but how did you feel about being an on air contributor? Oh, yeah. for me, that was uh, I, one of the only reasons I took that job, to be honest, because I left the daily show to perform. Because that's and, a different skill set from stand-up. That's, oh, totally different skill set. But it's it's the same in the sense of it's a live studio audience mm-hmm. and you're telling jokes. So you have to learn prompter, but it's pretty much reading. You know, like it's you, you got to read at pace. But um, I don't know. It, it really, for me, opened up more than anything. Uh, as a performer, I started to realize, like, oh, I can do characters and stuff. Like, And the characters I do are absurd. But that's what I – the thing that I loved about The Nightly Show that, you know, for me – Made it sad that, uh, I mean, I'm sad that I got canceled for a number of reasons, obviously, but. Right, I mean, we're still only a couple of months removed. From yes. That. So I, you know, I'm still, I'm still processing, you know, but I can tell you the thing I feel like we hit on at that show and it got, uh, it, it we got there too late, but I, we could have gotten there earlier, but you know, it's hard to mm-hmm. get, uh, to tweak a show while you're making it is hard. Right. And. You know, I, you have to learn everybody. Larry and I had worked together at the Daily Show, but, and we got along. Larry and I got along really well. Um, but it's, it's, it's just hard. It's hard to do something new. And, and if you watch Conan the first year, you know, they were just, it takes a while. Um, and Comedy Central gave us some time, but not probably as much as we needed. What we needed to, to stay on the air was we needed them to re-promote it. We needed to let them know that the nightly show you saw a year ago when Jon Stewart was still on the air, it's a very different show than what the nightly show is. We have a team of contributors now. We have three African American women on late night TV. I called Comedy Central ten times. I was like, "Why are we not? Why is there not an article about that?" You know, there wasn't. Oh yeah, yeah, we'll do it. You know, they didn't. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, they they had their reasons, I'm sure, for the way it went. Um, but I felt like we needed to be reintroduced to America because we had a very different show at the end than we had at the beginning. And the show we had at the end, what I loved about it was. We were able to take the Daily Show reality of these real heavy news stories, and we were mixing in these, like, Conan O'Brien absurd characters. So we had, like, you know, like, there was a story about um, when the uh, Apple, when the the iPhone of the terrorist 
in San Diego. They were trying to get in, and the FBI oh, couldn't, they couldn't crack hack it. it yeah. And they were talking about backdoor access. So everybody kept talking about backdoor access, backdoor access. So then I did a, a, a backdoor expert, who's just a creepy dude with a mustache in a basement. It was like, yeah, man, you gotta, you can't just go in the back door. You gotta wine and dine a baby, you know. So it's like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Where we were playing these like creepy, weird characters doing quick little bits, but we were talking about these big issues, you know. And I felt like that chemistry really started to connect. You know, and then it got killed, which which is fine. I mean, that's how the business works. But um, that is something that I really learned about myself as a performer, which is there's I, I what I forgot about at the Daily Show because I was at a place where we didn't get that silly was how much I love because when I if you asked me in 1999 where I would want to work at a news parody show or Conan Conan every time still to me Conan and Letterman original mm-hmm. Letterman like those dudes are gods to me because John Glazer, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, Brian McCann, like those yeah. dudes to me, just having a character like bulletproof legs, like, nuts. yes, exactly. Yeah. So uh, all of those mm-hmm. things to me were so funny. Mm-hmm. So the idea of combining sort of what I learned at the daily show with that original love of absurd comedy was a really fun idea. Let um, me ask you this, uh, the question, this topical way mm-hmm. is the system rigged? The election system? <laughs> no, is the late oh, night television? I'm not a Trump guy, but it's... is the late night television system rigged? Is it is it tough? Well, I mean, is it tough I think for it's... anything outside the. I think it's. I, I, I don't norm. think it's rigged. I just think it's. I mean, I hate to say this, but it it feels antiquated to me now. I think the right. problem with it is, and again, it's not to say that I want to be clear. I actually think right now all of the late night shows that are on, it's probably one of the smartest funniest times in late night history like if you watch seth meyers mm-hmm. it's really funny every night uh kimmel's funny every night fallon is not doing political stuff but he's always funny he's entertaining colbert i love to death i think mm-hmm. i that guy's has was probably one of the kindest and most encouraging he was one of the reasons i stayed he was like you're funny as hell they'll figure it out stick around stick around stick around he always believed in me and that helped a lot so i love that man so I, I can tell you that I think all of those people that are on late, and this isn't me being like a pussy, you know, like going, oh, well, I just right. want, and again, you can't say pussy because that means women are weak, but I don't mean it that way. I just mean wuss. But, uh, um, I've been in liberal late night for too long, but, uh, <laughs> but I can tell you that, um, for me, what made the Daily Show special in its time slot was, at the time, was the speed at which we were able to unpack something. And, what happened was now with the internet, and again, this isn't, uh, it's not a competition, but I can give you the best example was that right before the nightly show got canceled, it was summer Olympics. And at the same time, that dude was climbing up Trump tower. Yeah. Okay. So we were in the rewrite room. It was like five thirty, rewriting that night show shows. Tr- again, trying to tape at six cause it was a nightly show and I was trying to do it daily show style. And, uh, so I come out of the rewrite room to like go to the bathroom or something. I look up at the TV and I see this guy climbing Trump tower and I and look at one of the researchers, this guy, Tom Trevini, very funny dude. And I go, hey, man. I'm like, was he climbing up Michael Phelps' back? Just a stupid joke because Phelps was getting suction cupped the mm-hmm. whole time. They kept talking about his suction cups and this guy's climbing. Stupid little joke, but the kind of stupid little joke that would be a funny top of show, meaning you bump in the next night. You couldn't do it that night because we were about to tape. So we would have had to delay taping to get the footage and whatever. It's a quick joke. We'd do it the next night. 24 hours later would have been acceptable. Uh, at least it was in 2010 or 08, you know? And uh, <laughs> so the joke would have been you bump back in, whether it's Larry or John. Hey, what's up, everybody? You know, I was watching uh, this guy climb up Trump Tower. Can we widen out that? And then you widen out, and the graphic is he's climbing. Oh, my God, it's Phelps. Like, it's a quick, late-night, funny, silly yeah. joke, and then you get into the main story. Um, I w- made that joke, walked back into the rewrite room, turned on Twitter, you know, opened Twitter on my phone. 
a hundred people had already tweeted that joke with a perfect graphic. So, and it was funny and it looked as good as it would have on our show and it had been retweeted like 11,000 times already. So I was like, oh, that joke's burned and the dude's still on the building. And what they want at Comedy Central is 18 to 30 year olds or whatever, 34 year olds, whatever their magical demographic of razor buyers is. So you end up. Those dudes saw that joke on Twitter. So if we do that the next night, they now my mom didn't see it on Twitter. Right. And my mom loved the nightly show, but they don't want my mom <laughs> to love the nightly show. You know, so that to me is the was the fundamental problem with that type of show, which is why I think what John Oliver's doing right now and Sam B. I mean, I think to me Oliver has in a weird way by going to a a slower pace sort of discovered a whole new paradigm, which is the speed is out there, man. So competing at that pace is impossible. Right. But if you compete at the, we thought about this for a week level, Death. and you deep dive into yeah. it, now you got something special again. So it's weird in a in a way, like you got to go backwards to go forwards, you know. And so I think that that's the hardest thing about late night. It's really hard to watch a late night monologue, but also be constantly on, you know. And I'm I'm 39 and I'm on Twitter and Instagram. There's right. memes, there's jokes, there's so you're you're so much of this stuff by 11:30. <laughs> I feel like Jesus Christ, they're still talking about Trump. It's like right. that happened four hours ago, you know? And you're like, what do you mean four hours ago? That's a reasonable amount of time for us to produce a TV. So I to me that's look, it's there's a lot of people playing the game. There's a yeah. lot of shows, and there's the competition's coming from all angles. So you really, you know, you gotta look at it and go, Well, what do you know, and for for Larry, for our show, for the nightly show, we took over Stephen Colbert's time slot. Stephen Colbert didn't retire. He stayed on at 11.30 just on a bigger network with more money, like right up the street. It's not yeah. like the guy in the slot left. So anyone who liked Stephen just got to watch Stephen. They just flipped to another channel. You know, like it wasn't, wasn't even on cable. Yeah, it wasn't even on cable. They didn't even have to pay for it. So, yeah. it, you know, it's it's like a, you know, I feel like we were put in a impossible um, situation. Larry never even hosted a show, so they took him six mm-hmm. months. Give the guy six months to freaking figure it out, you know. Like so, with, by the time we got up to speed, and I do think we got there, you know, it was killed. And I'm not mad about that because it's a business, and like their every decision the network makes is not based on right. how do we make Rory like us. It's based on we're not getting enough ad revenue. What it's costing us to make it's a product. What it's costing us to make this is not it's not bringing in as, enough money. It's and and the Daily Show has a new host, you know, and. They got to focus on that, and so they cut this one. It, it right. totally makes sense. To but me. but I wonder how any new nightly late night show can hack it in this. In yeah, this I mean, era. I do. I'll put it. To I you mean, Sam B and John Oliver are once a week. But yeah, like a Monday through Thursday or Monday through yeah, Friday. I know. And how only do you, how do you launch a new? Mo- I don't know. I think either Chris Hardwick hosts it or it can't be on. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean it. I, I, I think that launching a new late night show. You joke, but he probably could. He could. I actually always, my joke always was I'm dying. I still, I, I still loosely pitch this whenever I see anyone who mm-hmm. at Comedy Central and any of the executives. I want to do a show called Talking Hardwick, which comes on after his show where I sit around and go, you see Hardwick tonight? That was what a Hardwick, you know, but nobody wants it. I don't get it. Um, so and Give I was and I always wanted and I always want to have Comedy Central. I wanted to do this when he was doing like Mad the Mad Men show and mm-hmm. the Walking Dead show. Yeah. But my guests are always John Hamm and Andrew Lincoln, like the two biggest stars <laughs> from the other shows. And we're just talking about Hardwick, and he can't get those guys, you know. No. But he can get you know. But I get him for talking Hardwick every week. Uh, well, back to you though. I mean, you've had the benefit of working with all of. Coming up in comedy with all of these great people. Yeah. You said Lewis Black took you on the road. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to go on the road with John Oliver uh, back in the day. 
Back when he was discovering America, I was going out with him a lot. So it was one yeah. of the, And you did his uh, stand-up show. Yeah, New I did his show. thing. I did a half hour, too, and on And then Comedy a half Central. hour in 2010. Yeah, yeah 2010. But like, so I was doing stand But again, all of that, like my half hour in 2010, I always look at it and go, man, that would have been better if I wasn't trying to climb the Daily Show because mm-hmm. I didn't have the hours. I just didn't have the, the time to put in, you know? So it, it here's the thing that sucks. You can't do a half hour and have a little screen come up at the beginning, a little disclaimer that's like, the half hour you're about to watch was performed by someone who had another job. <laughs> like, you can't caveat your shit. People either like it or they right. don't. So for me right now, you know, my biggest, not biggest problem, I got tons of problems, but my, my biggest stand-up comedy problem right mm-hmm. now is nobody knows me as a comic. So I've been doing it a long time, but I don't have fans, you know? And so, some people, very few, uh, 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 hence it being canceled, know me from the nightly show, but I think the thing that I'm challenged by right now is I go to do a room and I do well. Like I have my hour I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm proud of like, it's, it's a good hour. Uh, I'm trying to, you know, sell it. I, I hopefully will. Um, and I'll, and I'll be able to tape it and air it somewhere in 2017 and hopefully that will help. But no one knows me as a standup. So what I learned very quickly when I left the daily show before the nightly show was I thought having all those Emmys and the daily show was going to be enough to get people to come out. It ain't. So then I kept hearing from all the club owners yeah, you got to get on TV. I was like, well, how the fuck do you get on TV? And then John Stewart calls me. He goes, hey, man, I'm doing this new show. It's called The Nightly Show. I want you to run it. I'm like, sorry, dude. I'm on the road now. I'm eating sandwiches in bed, trying to have sex with waitresses, you know, road life. And uh, he says, well, because, you know, in the road, you just like lay in a hotel room all day and like eat, uh, uh, you know, Jimmy John's. And uh, it's nice. It's a good life. And having worked all those hours, I was happy to do it. And I was doing that stand-up but i was also writing a sitcom i had sold like i never just gave myself stand-up you know i was always doing a side thing so uh but he goes yo no but you could i want you on this show he's like you'll be like the token white guy on this show and then i was like oh that sounds funny and then he told me it was larry wilmer like fuck i didn't know it was larry like Mm -hmm. i love larry and you know so he gave me the opportunity to be on camera which is what brought me back to do it the problem for me was now i'm running a show on the show writing the show, right. and then still going out to the comedy cellar every night and doing stuff. But this time, unlike The Daily Show, I didn't stop. Because the comedy cellar, being there, getting passed at the comedy cellar and being a part of the comedy cellar has always been the dream. So once I was a part of that place, n- nightly show or not, I was I was there every night. You know, I didn't care. So I, I was basically going to work at 9 a.m., leaving work at 9 mm-hmm. p.m., going to the comedy cellar at 1 a.m., and then going home, sleeping, coming up, you know. As you as you enter this this phase of your career, who or or what has been the best kind of advice or source of inspiration for you? I mean, I think my source of inspiration is just the honestly, it's just knowing that it's it's all the cliches. It's knowing what everyone says, which is like it nothing comes easy. I I really have to say the hardest thing for me has been, and it's only been eight weeks, but the hardest thing for me has been. This expectation that I've paid my dues, man. Like I've paid my dues as a as a TV writer, mm-hmm. as a TV producer, uh, in comedy. I've paid my dues as a stand up multiple times. I'm now paying them all over again. Like I, when I that weekend I was in Atlanta when I had like light crowds because mm-hmm. all those big names were in town. One of the the Friday night shows, uh, I go to take a shower, no water comes out of the sp- the, sp- the faucet. You know, and I call the front desk, and you know, when you're running a TV show, like when I go to LA, like they'd fly me first class, and I'd be staying at the Four Seasons. Now I'm doing stand-up full-time, which I've done before, but now it's that's it. There's no Monday where I go back and, like, right. I have an assistant. You know, this is it. And, uh, you know, I turn on the water and air comes out. And then I call the front desk. I was like, oh, yeah, bro. He's like, I meant to I meant to tell everyone they're turning <laughs> off the water. You know, I'm like, well, that would have been helpful. You know, it's, you know, and I got a shower. And he's like, well, I got bottles of water down here, man. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a 39-year-old man. What am I going to do with a bottle of water? You know, so 
you know, and then you go to the gig 30. And right. I, none of that shit bothers me. I mean it. I, the excitement, I would rather be doing this than any of that other shit. I'd rather have no money and be performing in front of eight people on a Sunday night and not having been able to shower right. than anything else in the world. But I think for me, the struggle, not struggle, but the thing I know is the biggest challenge ahead is going, oh shit, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta do all the shit I did coming up as the footage guy and all that again as a stand-up like it doesn't transfer you don't get to transfer your points and go well and i got 14 years as a tv writer producer guy i'd like to i'd like to uh trade in uh eight years of that for uh, stand-up accomplishments you know like you got to earn it right. like and and the the system is every system is built that way so you just got to have the energy so my inspiration is just people who stay at it you know like i look at guys like seinfeld he doesn't need to be doing stand-up and he doesn't need to be doing anything but he's still doing it because he loves it so to me stand-up is like a drug it's an addiction and i don't have larry david or seinfeld money i don't have you know i, mm. I can basically i can i can afford to live in new york city for a little while and make what i'm making as a stand-up but i don't give a shit i would rather have to move out than not do it because it's it's just what i need to do and you come to a point in your life this is what i say to people and i've been trying to talk about it on stage a little bit but it's like i think gay people are like a superior race mm -hmm. i mean it because i think that they've come out of the closet and they know who they are and that's a hard thing to do and i think everyone has something to come out of the closet about it does not have to be sexually based mm -hmm. just something that's in you that you need to say out loud and go this is just who i am and if you have that and this for me has been who i am the whole time and i've run from it for uh, reasons of pleasing my parents for embarrassment. Mm -hmm. It's hard to tell people you're a comedian because if they don't know, think you're, you know, when I go to a town and people are like, what do you do for a living? It's a lot cooler to be like, I run the daily show than being like, I'm a comic. You are. Mm -hmm. I never heard of you. What do you work? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I do, I do, I tell jokes. So it's, I'm it, a governess. Yeah, I'm a, right. And I am. And I, by the way, love it. But it's like, <laughs> I, I can tell you that that took me years to get over. And, and, you know, to be a stand up to me was there was something. I also went to high school to a place where, if you were in the drama club, you were gay. Like, I grew up in one of those towns where, like, if you did anything other than play sports or, 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 you know, that's really it. You were just a gay dick. And, like, I wasn't good at sports, so I had to be funny. But I couldn't be in, like, the drama. Like, you just, everyone just made fun. So I came from such a neurotic sort of, like, God, I, I, I'd be embarrassed. If right. people think I'm doing this, I'm a, I had to, like, come through a, a lot of years of, of running from it. And so, I, I, it's it's weird how you get to a place in your life. It kind of doesn't matter anymore because not doing this just was no longer an option. And now I think for me the inspiration is those guys, those people who you realize they don't have to be doing it. It's because they they want it. And Louis, mm -hmm. like all these guys who are out there, and you just they they work, man. Like Louis's doing TV show. Louis's like cranking out a special a week, and like you know he's doing like an hour a week now, and he's got like a, three TV shows right. on the air, you know. So everyone's working hard, and that's the thing you realize is either you work hard or, or, or go home because you're competing against people who are nonstop. You know. So, let's say you go back to your high school mm -hmm. for a career day. Yeah. What's the first piece of advice you give to a the high kids at your kid? high school? I mean, my yeah. first piece of advice to anyone is don't expect it fast, and I keep telling, reminding myself of that, which mm -hmm. is. I, just because you, you have to put 10 years into something to really be it, that thing. You just do. And I put, you know, 15 years or 16 years in a standup, but not full time. Like I said, so that tracks to about mm -hmm. eight years. So, um, 10 years and you're a pro. So don't walk into a job or don't walk into a place and assume because of your natural talent that you're going to just 
Look, some people do, but those are anomalies. Mm-hmm. And don't be frustrated if you don't, because you can do. I don't believe anyone could be president. I don't believe anyone could do anything. I don't think anyone could do comedy. I think, com- like, I'll put it to you this way. If I was good at baseball, I'd be trying to be a fucking baseball player. <laughs> like, I was funny. So it was like, oh, okay, maybe mm-hmm. I can do this for a living. That would be a loophole in life if I could actually just tell, break jokes. And, and I did. I figured, okay, I can survive at the Daily Show. I've, I've existed. It, look, there's a validation in doing that shit. It's nice when I'm like, some hecklers give me a hard time in a room. They're like, you're not funny. I'm like, yeah, fuck you, dude. Tell that to my nine Emmys. And people are like, yeah. You know, like, it's a nice thing to have. So it's your nine. Po- yeah, well, nine right. Emmys. Okay. Yeah. I didn't say the number. <laughs> oh, shit. Um, but, but the, uh, oops, but the, uh, but I think that the advice I would give them is just don't think you're not doing it if it's not happening immediately. Mm-hmm. You're still doing it. And, and notice the progress. My, my advice always is if I'm in two years from now, if I'm in a hotel and there's no water, mm-hmm. fine. But if I go to the room and it's empty, I'm doing something wrong. You can't blame the system. That's the other thing everybody does too. They're like, hey, no, it's not fair. Cause it, nah, it's on you. Mm-hmm. The thing that's scariest about, about entertainment business is there's a free for all component to it. It's not a just system. Just cause you worked hard and you're good doesn't mean you make it, you know? So that's kind of the deal. And I, that, I always just tell people like, but if you have a passion for something, man, pursue it because life's fast. I, you know, I'm 39 now. I tell you about my time at the daily show when I was 22. It doesn't seem like it was 17 years ago. It seems like it was last weekend. And then I look in the mirror. I'm like, fuck, that hair's gray, man. What the hell happened? You know, you, it just happens fast. Yeah, it does. You know? Well, Rory Albanese, I appreciate you sitting with me, and uh, I'll check back with you in two years and see, yes, please. see how the water's Thank running. You. That's good to know. I'm, I got a gig in two years. <laughs> <laughs> see you then. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate Thanks. it. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.